This morning's passage is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him greatly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marking places and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. We are in the Tuesday of Jesus' life. He is wrapping up these discussions. We're going to talk about the uh, end times in the next couple weeks after this. And then we head into the, the uh, really uh, a beeline to the cross. Uh, we'll be wrapping up the Gospel of Mark 2, which I'm, I'm glad it's kind of worked out. We'll be wrapping it up on Easter. We'll be finishing Mark, and he finishes with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. I'm looking forward to that now as we head deeper into the week, uh, the Passion Week of Jesus' life. Well, what if I told you today that it was dangerous for you to be here? Probably get your attention, wouldn't I? There's a truth in the Bible that declares that once you've heard the truth, you're responsible for what you do with that truth. Once you've heard the, the, the truth claims of Jesus Christ, you're more accountable for having heard God's truth. If you choose to follow him or reject him, the more you know, in other words, the more accountable you are. So on one hand, it's a blessing to know to the truth. On the other hand, what comes with that is an accountability. It's true of teachers of the Word of God, those who, are, who have studied the Word. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And as he said, you heard in the passage just read, as he said of the scribes today, those two who are supposed to know the truth because of what they know and their lack of true heart worship, Jesus said, they will receive greater condemnation. But it's true for all of us when Jesus, as he says this, uh, Luke 12, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. 
So if I got your attention today, we think about this truth. It's a fresh reminder, actually, that when we sit under the preached word, God speaks. God speaks. And we're asked to respond to that word, however the Spirit applies it to our heart. It means we should come expectantly on a Sunday morning, and really every time you open your Bible, come expectantly. Well, Jesus is getting ready to open his words, which we have in the Bible, open his mouth now as he begins to ask some questions. He now begins to ask some questions. After hours of questioning now, Remember, this is all these last four even Sundays. These questions they've been asking him are really on one day. So after hours now of being questioned with discussions in the temple, he is going to now respond. He's going to now ask them some questions. It's, it's their turn now. The cross is three days away for Jesus, and, and he raises the stakes here as we've been saying. He's really got nothing to lose, does he? He's in the middle of this week. The cross is coming. He's making a beeline And so this morning he goes on the offensive now. He turns the tables on them with a dangerous question, as I said. A dangerous question that he already posed to the disciples in private. Who's the Messiah? That's the question. Who is the Messiah? It's the question of the ages. It's the most important question you will ever answer or anybody you know in your life. The identity of the Savior. That is the question. That is life's question. And the answer to that question shapes the heart, our heart, the heart of love we've been talking about the last couple weeks, and our heart of giving that we're going to talk about this morning. So this morning we're going to look at three types of love, three types of love that are shaped by how you answer that question. Who's the Messiah? Because the question he really poses implicitly to these scribes this morning. So hopefully you got your outline there with your fill-ins and have your Bible or your smartphone or your tablet uh, with Mark 12 on it so we can reference the text together this morning uh, as we dive a little bit deeper into this and see as we look at this first type of love. Here it is. We're going to talk about the love of God in the flesh. The love of God in the flesh is the first type of love this morning out of these three. Well, as we've been talking about already this morning, the religious authorities and these leaders, they've, they've been challenging Jesus with question after question after question. You ever get exhausted after just like answering a million questions? Sometimes our kids or grandkids can do that. They ask a question, you answer, you answer well, why? You answer, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And you get 20 questions in, you're just like, all right, just stop. I don't know. I don't know the answer. That's what Jesus has been kind of experiencing, something like that. Question after question. And now he comes to them with a question, though. He comes to them now. And he comes as close as he ever does in all of Scripture to revealing his identity. As close as he does to anywhere else in the Bible this morning. And that's what we have to wrestle with today. This is what's so dangerous about this morning. Once you hear... Once you hear Jesus' words this morning, like the surrounding crowd around on the, t- on the temple on that day, you are responsible for what you do with it. That's what I meant when I said, if I told you it was dangerous to come this morning, because once you hear Jesus now talk about himself, you're responsible for what you do with that. But if you call yourself a follower of Christ today, you get to see again, and we're going to get to see again, and all of us will, the heart of the gospel today. The heart of the gospel today. And it is the love of God shown to us. The love of God to us as Jesus came in the flesh. 
That's what we're talking about, this first love. The love of God is Jesus came to us in the flesh. I think, in many ways, Jesus is giving the clearest description this morning of his keeping, as he just taught on, the two greatest commandments. Remember that. He just taught on the two greatest commandments. Do you remember them from a couple weeks ago? Here they are again so we can see them from just earlier up in our passage. He said, Hear, O Israel, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you remember that? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then with Jesus, there's always a bonus answer too. The second one is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ kept the law. He fulfilled all of God's law and demands perfectly of loving God uh, and loving neighbor perfectly. And I think in some way he's summing up for the large crowd that he's doing this with his questions. So let's look and take a look and how is Jesus coming in the flesh? How is he actually fulfilling the love of God and the love of, of neighbor? Let's talk about it. So let's look first at his humanity. Jesus' humanity. Jesus was, this is not a shocker, a real human on earth. I mean, almost ev- anybody will believe that from a, a Christian to a, a secular historian to maybe uh, an atheist. No one really denies that Jesus was a human. So then what's the big deal with making this statement or Jesus here pointing to his own humanity? Well, Jesus teaches about himself here. He, he wants us to see something important because most of the time in Jesus' teaching, he's pointing him away from himself, isn't he? Who's he pointing to? He's pointing to his Father. He's so much of his ministry as I came to the Father's will. I came to please the Father. I'm, talk, I'm pointing you to the Father. But here now, he zeroes in on himself. Here now, he zeroes in on his identity, much like he did with the disciples in private when he said to them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? But now he's doing it in public. Now he's doing it out in the temple. As I said, this is the closest he gets in a public setting to just absolutely coming out with who he is. Well, he begins by establishing the not very controversial fact that the Messiah would be human, okay? That's the first one. Human, but also born from the line, the family of David. Take a look at verse 35 with me today in Mark chapter 12. We'll read through some of it again together today. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. He gets them thinking right away back to their history, back to who they are, back to the Old Testament, back to their forefathers, back to the, the founders of, of their faith, really. Back to David. Get some thinking back to the Old Testament and those prophecies that the Messiah would be born from King David's family. And that was not a shocker to them. Not a shocker. Here's just a couple verses out of many in the Bible that point to the Messiah would be a human that would come from the human family of David. Here's just a couple. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.16 says, And your house and your kingdom, this is a promise made to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever throne? It's going to come from David's line. Here was one Psalm 89. You've said I've made my covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all 
generations. And these are just a couple of the passages of many more that come out of Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I mean, even in the book of Mark. Do you remember? Even in our own book here. The blind man cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or, or when he entered the city a couple months back, we covered that passage, the, the entrance into Jerusalem. They said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They could all agree on this. As Jesus is saying this, they could all agree on this. The Messiah would be human. David knew that. They knew that. We know that. So we all agree Jesus is saying this. But then Jesus goes on to say, if that's all true, if that's all true, how does David say this? Take a look at 36, how he continues. In 36 and 37, he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's a claim not only to Jesus' humanity, but we're going to talk about now too, Jesus' divinity. Jesus is claiming something really big here. Really big. He quotes to them, and that you might see in your Bible, it's, it's kind of sectioned off. That usually is a quote from another place, an Old Testament usually. He quotes to them the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. The most quoted Psalm 110. But first with a little caveat. He says, David himself was, he was speaking. David was writing when he wrote this Psalm that you all know he's saying to the audience there, the crowd in the temple. David was writing this in the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? He said, David wrote these words. So I'm going to tell them to you, but I also want you to know that David wrote these in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is claiming there an inspiration of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Jesus believes that God can speak through humans and have it be God's Word. To put it simply, Jesus believes that. Much like Peter explained in his second letter, here's a great uh, definition of what Jesus is saying. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, the view that this Bible is God's Word is not a, a modern invention. It's not something the medieval church did to grab power, which some people might think, and control of people by saying, well, we've got a book, it's God's Word, so now you listen to us. Jesus himself says it, that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself Jesus believed the Bible to be a unique human divine book, much like right now he's claiming for himself to be both human and divine. That's what we see happening. I mean, what are we opening, what are we opening this book together for Sunday after Sunday or every time you read it, if it's not God's word to us? What are we doing? What are we gathering for? What are you pulling it off your nightstand for and listening to through uh, the Bible app on the car when you drive? What are we doing if it's not God's Word to us? But the com comforting thing we have today is that Jesus believed it was too. That's what he's saying to them. It's, it's kind of a tiny caveat. You can just miss it. We could blow right over it in there. But Jesus is saying something really big. He's saying, this is God's Word. 
So as he poses this challenge to the scribes, will you believe and follow what it says then is what he's telling them. It's from the Holy Spirit. And he quotes to them a doozy of a verse. I mean, it's just a really like, it's a verse that just, I mean, they probably had never thought about it this way until he did this. Let's take a look at it. 1236, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, you see it behind me, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's from Psalm 10, as I said. Psalm 10, verse 1. The first verse of that psalm, which they all would have understood to be a passage about this Messiah. It was a messianic psalm. They all would have known that. But it begins with this phrase, the Lord said to my, that's David's, Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Or literally what it's saying there is that Yahweh said, to Adonai. So Yahweh, the divine, said to Adonai, another title for, only for God, God said to God, sit at my right hand. Now, I don't think anybody up until Jesus' uh, life in history probably made this connection. You ever have those moments where those, they're aha moments. You're trying to figure something out, or you try to remember where you put something. That's me. You're like, oh, yeah, on the shelf in the garage. That's where I left my keys. You know, this is one of those moments where you're just like, aha moments. I don't think anybody in history had made this connection until Jesus shows up at this point. And so he comes to them and he says, okay, how could David call his own son his Lord? How, how can he be his human son and yet say, Lord Adonai? How is that possible? It's a great question. How can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord if he's just a human? How could he use that term if he's just a human? My son Jack uh, made me a, a necklace this week. I was going to bring it. I forgot to wear it, but um, he, he made, it was, a, I think, a Valentine's Day thing or something, and I absolutely loved it. It was a, a friendship necklace. It was a, um, a blue heart that he had written best friends on. They cut it in half, you know, and he came on Valentine's Day and gave me the other half. It was so just sweet. Like one of those moments, like, oh, it, was, it just kind of melted me. He's like, I want, I want Daddy to have this. I want him to have it. So he came and, and gave it to me, and uh, I put it on, and I, you know, I, I, I told him thank you, you know, and, I, uh, I, and as I talked to him, I would either say, how would I address him? Well, thank you, son. Thank you, my boy. Thank you, my child. Or I might even say, oh, thanks, my best friend that's on, the, on that uh, necklace. But what if he handed that to me and I looked at him and I said, thank you, my Lord. It's just, it wouldn't ring true, would it? If I looked at my son and he gave me a gift and I just, you know, even got down on a knee, thank you, my Lord. I mean, it just, it just it's, wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It'd be absurd to call your own son your Lord. That's what's happening here. That's what David is saying. To be David's son and to call him Lord is for the human Jesus to be claiming he's God. That is what's happening here. He's David's son, yes, but he's also David's sovereign Lord. The same human that came from David's line. And here Jesus both loves God and humanity. He comes being sent by the Father. And he obeys the Father, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he loves us as neighbor because he takes on a body. And he becomes like one of us. So right here, Jesus is showing them, I'm fulfilling both love of God and love of neighbor because I'm the human divine God-man. He's claiming something really big. 
as he goes to die on a cross and love neighbor and God supremely. We get a perfect picture of Jesus keeping those two great commandments, loving God and loving neighbor. So now, you've heard it even from the mouth of Jesus. What's your response to that love? What's your response? Because now you've heard it even from Jesus' mouth. It's as close as he ever gets to saying, I am David's son, and yes, I am David's Lord. I am God in flesh. What we do with it matters. How we respond to that type of love. Well, Jesus gives us a warning in the second type of love that we look at, which is really a negative example of how not to respond to this divine revelation of Jesus. Here's our second one. The love of God for the sake of the self. Or you could say the love of God for the sake of the love of self. You could even write that in there if you want. When you hear of God in flesh, that he humbled himself. We read from the passage, or I read in our prayer today. Humbled himself, emptied himself, took on flesh, became obedient to death on a cross. When you see God humble himself by taking the form of a servant, this is not how we should respond. Messiah, uh, uh, the religious leaders were expecting Messiah who is one of power and might and political force, and here comes God in flesh to die? This is David's son? Come on. So he goes on the attack and he confronts his opponents who only really loved God for what they could get out of God. They loved God for what they could get out of God. And that's what I mean by this second point. The love of God for just the sake of self. Let's look at 38 through 40. He describes these describes these scribes. It's hard to say. It describes these scribes. Uh, he says in verse 38, In his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They'll receive the greater condemnation. It's a shocking contrast. Here comes the creator of the world. He's standing right there in front of them leading them to trust him as the Messiah, and he indicts them with this is how they show their love for God. Seeking position and praise and prosperity and pretense, we're going to call it. It's that sub-point there, that position, praise, prosperity, and pretense, Jesus says, bring, really, condemnation. These were the guys who were supposed to know God. These were the guys James is talking about, the teachers of God's Word. They were the theological elites of their day. They had a direct line to God, the people thought. And yet they sought position by wearing special clothes, being noticed in the marketplace, Jesus says. They sought praise for the best seats and places of honor. They sought prosperity, as Jesus said, by robbing, devouring widows' homes and pretense with these long, uh, long, long, long public prayers. Remember from last week's passage, the love of God produces the love of neighbor, doesn't it? The love of God produces an overflow of the love of neighbor. You can say it another way. Uh, we're blessed to be a blessing. You know God, it's a blessing to be a blessing to others. Another way to say it. The love of God produces the love of neighbor. 
To know how much you're loved in the gospel is to love neighbor. neighbor. In other words, gospel uh, doctrine, belief, and love, remember the heart, produces a gospel culture of loving each other. Our gospel belief and doctrine and truth should produce a gospel culture in the church, amongst His people, outside these walls as we go and live. A gospel community that's not manipulative or, or, or exploitative in relationships as Jesus is describing here. That's what we're after, Bethany Church. Gospel doctrine that produces gospel culture that will be taken outside these walls to produ- produce a gospel city. That's our heart. That's what God wants to happen through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the two commandments. Love God, therefore love others. But these scribes, They're clearly loving God for what they can get out of God, which isn't really loving God at all, is it? Not just to get God himself. They they, they want the things of God, not just God himself. They're not concerned with seeing a a gospel culture of generous service. This is is self-serving self-piety uh, and promotion that Jesus is describing here that's devouring the community, actually. It's eating itself up from the inside out, is the way he describes it. It's devouring the widow's home, causing it to shrivel with a, self de- de- a self-serving defrauding of widows. Not a culture of gospel generosity. I love how a little quote by John Piper that he said about this idea uh, that, that for the scribes has become this kind of like grinding out just kind of for the sake of themselves, this, this service to God, which is really service to self. He describes even many Christians like this. For many, Christianity's become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike awe and wonder have died. The scenery and the poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. What an image, isn't it? What an image. What a graphic image for us. To them, the Son of God now, the light of the world, the hope for humanity is standing in front of them, and to them, He's like a forgotten dried up peach in the back of the refrigerator. Are you just grinding out obedience? Do you feel that ever? Just kind of grinding it out day after day, this grudging kind of obedience, joyless discipleship. Do you feel like that ever? Has the awe and wonder of who Christ is become too familiar or has it, has it dried up like a peach in the back of the fridge? Have you ever had it? Their Judaism had become only laws, grinding out obedience day after day. And their religion, their, religion, their, their, their self-righteousness was all this just external position, praise, prosperity. And so they lived without a culture of grace. It wasn't a gospel culture. But do you know the grace of God, saved by God? The one whose temple it was was standing there and he was going to die for them a few days later. May they never say of us, of us, may they never say of us that uh, they were just like 
grinding out obedience or that their love of Jesus was like a dried up piece of fruit. May they never say that of us, of you, that we're grinding out obedience. Let them say as they look at us, what has captivated that people? What has got their heart? Like, what is going on at Bethany Church? What are they so like taken with this Jesus guy for? Why are they devoting their lives and, and, and sacrificing and serving and doing it so joyfully? What has captivated them? Not what piece of dried fruit are they staring at? Let them say that about us. When we open the fridge, may the gospel be a feast so that it's so filling that we, 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 we overflow with it. We're so full on it we can't help but share it. May that be what's in the fridge when we open it. Overflowing with acts of love for each other and our neighbors. And, you know, we described it as loving God for the sake of self. They weren't loving God. So they weren't loving their neighbor. They were unjustly defrauding their neighbor, Jesus says. A widow, they describe. At that time in their culture, a widow would have been the most vulnerable person uh, without the, the, the social net, maybe, or the, uh, to catch them. The most vulnerable person there in their culture was being robbed. And they weren't using it for gospel culture, gospel ministry, anything, but for self-promotion and show and to prop up a temple system that had become corrupt. Remember, Jesus just overturned the tables there. And he would soon overturn it entirely at the cross. And they were robbing these widows. To whom much is given, much will be required, Jesus says. And so he says of them, they will receive greater condemnation. They loved God for the sake of the love for self. And it's a good thing for us to even question and ask, are we serving God? Are we loving God just for the sake of getting God or for the things of God that come with him? I pray that for us, each and every one of us, it's that first, that we're serving God just for the sake of getting God. Knowing Jesus and knowing his gospel. Let our love look like this, this third one. The love of God just for the sake of the love of God. The love of God just for the sake of the love of God. We don't know what happens with these scribes. He obviously walks away from them here after this little exchange. Jesus and the disciples, they head towards the outer court, the court of the women, they called it, where they had these chests that looked kind of like a trumpet. Imagine maybe like a big gramophone, you know, the old record players, the big phone on it that went down into a box, Uh, a, a box, a treasure box for gifts. They were called shofar chests, like a horn on top of a box, and you'd go into this court area and there was 13 of them for different types of offerings even they were labeled and you'd go in there and you drop your 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 offering into this horn on top of the box and as you drop it depending even on the size of your gift it would amplify this sound out into the courtyard kind of interesting way to give huh As they came on this day and Jesus walked out there, they were watching the people give. Remember, it was Passover week. Lots of offerings were being brought. How many like to people watch? Go to Cutsforth, grab a cup of coffee, and 
I've seen some of you sitting over in the corner there, kind of watching people. I do it too. Uh, Go there, just watching people. It's kind of fun to do, isn't it? You people watch the different interests and watch them interact and their faces and their emotions. I wonder what they're talking about. We'll go over and listen. Don't do that. Um, But we like to do that. We love to people watch. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here in this moment. He goes to this courtyard and he does some people watching. Just kind of standing there, watching with his disciples and as they're bringing in these offerings on Passover week. And some were bringing in big bags of money, big offerings. And as they put them in the, 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 the box and the horn, there probably was a larger sound and it was a big, big show. But then comes this widow. This widow who comes in and puts in two small coins which if you make the, the, um, the trans, translation or the, the currency transfer to our day or even the Roman day, it was like what she put in was like 164th of a, a, a day's wage. It was like nothing. 164th of, imagine what you get in a day at your job. Hardly anything, right? Just a small amount. She's not noticed by anyone in this courtyard, that means, except Jesus. Nobody notices her. Except Jesus as he's people watching. But for what reason? Why does he notice her? Uh, there's all kinds of things going on. People bringing in all kinds of offerings, all kinds of discussions. He's got scribes and Pharisees probably still there breathing down his neck. But he notices this one widow. You know, there's a big question with this text. You hear this text, like, what's the, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, but I, I went back and forth this week with this text, racking my brain, praying. Here's the big question. Is the widow, is she here for us to be a contrast to the scribes' hypocrisy and the givers, other givers in the temple? Or is she an example of their devouring that Jesus just mentioned? I mean, just mentioned that. They're devouring widows. And then all of a sudden this widow comes along. Which one is she? I mean, I went back and forth with this question this week because it does impact how we would imply this, doesn't it? Is she to be praised as the as a keeper of the two great commands, love God and love neighbor, with her contrast to the pretense, the show, the empty religion of the scribes, or contrasted with the, the rich big offerings? Or is she the example from verse 40 of a widow who's being devoured? You see my dilemma? You see our dilemma? Because she's giving to a corrupt temple. And her small offering actually means it probably would have went in something called the free will offering chest, which was for the upkeep of the temple. And what does Jesus say in a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 13? This temple is going to be destroyed. So she's giving to something that's about to be torn down. It was a tough one. Went back and forth this week with this uh, text. I couldn't get away, though, from the natural reading of the text. Uh, even if it might be, a, it might even be a both and here for us to see. Um, But the natural reading of this text, which has been the kind of historical reading of this text, is that she seems to be being praised for her selfless generosity, even if the motives of those taking in the funds was corrupt. And yet, at the same time, this text shouldn't be exploited as it could be to defraud others and widows out of and guilting them into giving everything, even if it was reckless and destructive. Because we're going to see that's not a godly motive of giving anyways, to be guilted. God doesn't want us to give out of guilt. It's challenging. So what can we take away from this widow 
and this little tiny interaction here. Let's take a couple things away. As I do think, I do think Jesus is pointing her out. I had to come down somewhere on that. It could be an either, a both end, but I do think the highlight is that this widow did a good thing, a God-honoring thing. Here's the first one. First thing we'll glean. Giving is a matter of the heart. Giving is a matter of the heart. If Jesus is more, more pleased with this woman, which seems to be the case, it means that he looks at the heart. He looks at the heart of giving more than the size of the gift. Obviously, right? What did she give? It was, it was like nothing. And yet he's pleased with her. He says even that the widow put in more than the rich. I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying he disapproves of all offerings by those who have more, but it does mean you can be the biggest giver in any room and be really far from God. It does mean that. You can be the biggest giver in any room and be really far from God. Giving for wrong motives, as he's looking at the heart of this woman. Giving to earn favor with God or others, whatever it might be, to feel good about self. It could be all kinds of motives. Especially if you're doing it in public, as this was such a public way they had set up their offering. Or possibly for show. But also for the fact that a large gift can be given, which I think Jesus is pointing us to, a large gift can be given by someone with great means and it not really hurt in any way. Yet this widow, he says, gave of her all. He's saying giving out a surplus doesn't cost much. Jesus is looking at her heart. It's costing her a lot, which would mean giving really is not as much about how much you give, but how much you keep back for yourself. That's what Jesus is getting at here when he was so pleased with this woman because he knows she, it hurt. <laughs> the widow, on the other hand, must have given from a heart of worship, not guilt, of gratitude, of, of love for God and others. She had nothing by earthly, worldly standards. Nothing. She was a nobody when Jesus laid eyes on her and her gift was almost nothing. But for you and me, you know what it means? It means you don't have to be a somebody to be loved by somebody. It means you don't have to be a somebody to be loved by God in flesh. If, if he's truly praising and loving this woman here, it means that God doesn't look on your status, your bank account, your prestige, your accomplishment. He looks at your heart. That's what God looks at. We know that in David's life. He, God, man looks on outwards appearance. God looks on the heart. I mean, how many times have you felt alone, unnoticed, unimportant, forgotten, skipped over, insignificant? Maybe you feel that way today. But we sang it today. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. We sang it today. The widow was the most significant person in that room to Jesus. Absolutely insignificant to her culture, but the most significant person in the room to Jesus because she was keeping the Shema from the heart. That law we just read, the law Jesus just taught about, she was keeping love God, love others from the heart in that moment. That's why she mattered to Jesus. So it means you can be loved as an unimportant. You can be loved even when you feel insignificant. God looks at the heart. Not our bank account, 
That's good news because there's, there's, I, all of us struggle with that. Maybe you are today. Does anybody notice me? He did here, didn't he? Everybody else walked by him and he zeroed right in on her. That widow who was giving from the heart. He sees you. He saw her. He knows. You matter to him, it means. Even your smallest gift that's given in faith. That's what we can glean from this lady. Well, the second one is this. Small gifts can also come from big love. Our first one was that this giving is a matter of the heart. These small gifts can come from a big love. Remember, she's nobody in their culture, and yet she gives of all, her all to God, Jesus says. She gives of her all to God. And although it was the smallest gift, probably given on that day, it's had the greater impact. It's had the greater impact in the history of the church, hasn't it? Because it was given from a big love. That's why. I mean, those other gifts, we don't know about those people. They came in and brought their gifts. And she's unnoticed. She slips in quietly. She drops her two coins in, in this busy temple that probably made no sound at all. But the sound from a worshipful heart, that what she did, that's reverberated throughout all history. And the church has been impacted, and it's produced more for the kingdom than all the gifts ever given on any Passover week through all of Israel's history. This woman's gift. Her gift's the one we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> She's still being honored and mentioned today, this widow. Her gift's the one that's challenging us today in our own giving. Because she realized the essence of giving was sacrifice. The essence of giving is Jesus' sacrifice. It came from a big love. Jesus, the one who gave all. And the motive for your giving, as we even, even as mentioned earlier in the service, the motive for our giving here, of our time, of our money, of ourself, is not to be guilt. It's to be grace. Let's take a look at our final. We give because of grace, not guilt, to promote a gospel flourishing. That's what we want. We give because of grace not guilt to promote gospel flourishing, which I think is what this woman was doing. Giving's not to be guilted when we give of ourselves, whatever that might be, to church or to others. It's not to be guilted or compulsory or legalistic or just grinding it out because I'm supposed to do it. It's not. It's to be an act of worship, uh, of sacrifice, of cheerful, uh, joyful giving. And yet I don't always look at it that way. Do you? The absence of that joy in giving points to a deeper problem, really a question, why do you give? If you do, why do you give? It fits with our question last week, well, what do you love? Remember that. Why do you give? Well, what do you love? Or another question, if you're here and this is a place where you're fed by the gospel, why do you not give? That's another question to ask. If you're being fed here in this local community in the gospel of grace, why do you give is a good one to ask? But here's another question for us that we take away from her. Why do you not give if this is the place where you're fed with life and the gospel? It's an action this woman's showing us of gratitude. It's not legality. It's not a law. It's not to earn favor. 
It's, it's gratitude. Any giving in life, any sacrifice in life, it's gratitude to the giving that God has done to us and for us. To the grace of God you've been shown in Christ to further His work, to the spread of His kingdom, gospel flourishing. That's why one of the reasons we take stewardship of finances seriously here too. It's why we've begun a financial team again. We want gospel flourishing, which means we give. We want to support our gospel culture here at Bethany Church in our community. And so we give, but because of grace. That is why we give. It's an act of worship, an act of joy, an overflow of the heart. It's a privilege. We close with Hebrews today. I think this passage says it so well. What promotes our giving? What calls us to live sacrificially? Whether it's money or just of our giving of ourselves and our time. Here it is. Through Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Jesus, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. That's Jesus' name. Through Jesus, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Because through Jesus, such sacrifices are pleasing to God, just like this widow. That's why, for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we see much in this woman's life, much in these stories, as Jesus himself loves us by taking on flesh, so too he challenges us with what do we do with that? How do we respond? Do we love God? Do we love you just for the sake of getting you? Or do we love you, as these scribes Jesus pointed out, for the sake of getting the things of God? Lord, let us be challenged today, as I know I am and I was this week, by looking at this widow's response. Uh, As you challenge us to look and see, uh, how do I give? Why do I give? What's the purpose? What's my motive? What's in my heart? May it be said of us, Lord, that we were people that were feasting on the gospel and so live that way. Let it never become a dry, shriveled peach to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.